Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. This is a very different program today. It is the beginning of a three-part series. Yes, we'll begin with health and nutrition, but then we're going to spend time with a special commentary. And that special commentary is going to deal with why we are filled with such angst, what is the consequences of our recent elections, and what should we be paying attention to that we're not that could adversely affect everyone listening. Then we have a special guest. It is the first of three guests. Tomorrow it'll be Chris Hedges. But today it is Alexis Baden-Mayer. You may not have heard of her, and you'll wonder why you haven't when you hear how she has uncovered connections on the gain-of-function research. She is looking at things that are telling us that we have been misled. Now, before we do a program like this, where some very powerful statements are going to be made that challenge what we believe we know about coronavirus, we independently verify the facts, Richard Gale, myself. We scrutinize every document and ask, could this be presented in a court of law? And if the answer is no, we don't have the guest on. If the answer is yes, we do. And we have. You're going to hear things you've not heard. Then on our third show in this series, which will be Monday, the entire hour will be a topic taking you to who's behind this, what is their motive, and how have they managed to do this without being exposed. The person who will be leading this expedition, we've had multiple pre-interviews with, we've asked for confirming documentation, we have independently confirmed every statement that we believe that he will be stating, and it is dynamite. In fact, on that show I'll be doing an introduction showing how what we are going to present that day on Monday is as important as Daniel Ellsberg's taking the Pentagon Papers to the, near, uh, to the Washington Post. So we have a lot to share over the next three days that I believe will separate out the false conspiracy theories that are speculative and specious, that discredit the legitimacy of those journalists, activists, citizen activists, physicians and, and scientists who know things are wrong but have been deplatformed and criticized for even offering an alternative perspective. We have not been found wrong on a single one of the major stories that we have broken, and that goes back a long time. So prepare yourself for new and very disturbing information on today's show. But we begin, as always, with latest on health and healing. This is from the Agriculture University in China, and it explores the glucose-lowering composition and mechanisms of tea. Now, of course, we're talking about green tea, but it comes in many different forms. And according to this latest scientific evidence, tea, having green tea each day, promotes human health and helps maintain the blood sugar so you don't end up with hyperglycemia, which is elevated blood sugar, hyper or hypo, which is too low. And so that's good news. So the article was about T metabolism and a database and uh, read through it. And I thought, wow, if everyone knew how good green tea was as a bioactive ingredient and how that can help you if you have high blood sugar, and many people do, over 100 million in the United States alone, nearly um, about... I would say around 25% of our entire population. So that is simply terrific. Also from Boston University comes a study published in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine about brain imaging study pinpoints neurotransmitter that may be responsible for yoga's mood-boosting effect. Now on the one hand, we're told it's all in your mind. The skeptics, those reductionist people who don't believe in energy, don't and energy in the human body and or energy healing or meditation or body mind or prayer 
They think it's all nonsense. But thousands of studies have shown they're wrong. There are studies on prayer where people did not know they were being prayed for. Uh, with one group who have a disease, another group who were not prayed for, and the outcome was statistically significant for those who were prayed for. Yes, prayer has, intention of thought has, and effort to share an energy has, the ability to transfer energy from one person to another. But you didn't need a scientific study to validate when you look in someone's eyes that you are enamored by and love, that you feel the energy. Ask any mother, do they need a doctor to tell them something's wrong with their child? Or their spouse, what's wrong? Nothing. Something's wrong. No, but you know something's wrong, and in the end you find out, yeah, there's something wrong. It may not be serious, but you, your intuition is part of our entire mechanism of being able to see like a human radar, what's in front of us when our conditioning does not allow us that clarity. So now when people say, well, when I did the yoga, I suddenly have a clarity of mind. I feel lighter. I feel more open. I feel I, feel I can take a step forward from where I was. Now we can actually pinpoint the part of the brain. And we thought it was just GABA. That's a GABA, that's a chemical in the brain, gamma immunobutyric acid. And this recent study found evidence to suggest that yoga exerts its mood-boosting effect by increasing GABA activity among individuals with depression. So A, GABA helps people with depression. You can take that as a supplement. B, yoga helps people with depression. Exercise helps people with depression. All these are important, and they all are based upon energy. And now they've found the actual pinpoint in the brain where all this occurs. So to the skeptics, once again, unfortunately for you, while you were saying you're depressed, it's mechanical, it's biochemical, you need a medication, and we're so showing, no, we simply need to put ourselves into a different mindset release old energy and embrace new in yoga, deep breathing, mindful meditation, prayer, being around loved, loved ones, being in a beautiful natural setting, will do the same thing without the pharmacological adverse effects. And finally, vitamin C is important now as an adjunctive therapy for COVID, sepsis, and respiratory infections. This is from the University of Otago, which is a major university in New Zealand, and uh, also from the United Kingdom, a Swansea University Medical S a School. And I was hoping, sooner rather than later, that we would be shown that vitamin C should be a preventative therapy for COVID or any other infection. After all, how often do you hear people say, well, you know, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I'm going to take some herbal teas with some manuka honey. I'm going to load up on vitamin D, like 50,000 units. I'm going to take extra zinc. I'm going to take extra vitamin C, and I'm going to take vitamin C throughout the day. And the next day, how do you feel? Much better versus the person that doesn't take any of that, and they don't have an immune system that's able to withstand the assault of whatever virus they're infected by. But now there are therapies for COVID-19 using vitamin C. Why? Because it's a strong anti-inflammatory all over the body, from the brain to the lungs, to the heart, to the musculature system. And it's immunomodulating, meaning it stimulates the immune system. So now these two universities have shown that it can both be used for the prevention and amelioration of COVID-19 infection and as an adjunctive therapy in the critical care of COVID-19. So what they found when they were looking at the scientific literature according to the scientific study is that almost everybody who had COVID was vitamin C deficient. So conclusions, quote, 
Vitamin C's potential benefits, low cost, safety profile, and multiple disease modulating actions, including antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and immunomodulating effects, make it an attractive therapeutic candidate in reducing viral load with oral supplementation in the range of 2 to 8 grams, that's 2 to 8,000 milligrams per day, to help attenuate the conversion uh, to the critical phase of COVID-19, meaning it keeps you from going from being sick to really sick. Quote, likewise, vitamin C has potential benefits in treating acute respiratory infections and mitigating inflammation in critical COVID-19 patients with intravenous vitamin C infusion, and the range is 6 to 24,000 milligrams or 6 to 24 grams per day for correcting disease-induced deficiency, reducing inflammation, enhancing interferon production, and supporting anti-inflammatory actions of the glucocorticoid steroids, especially given the high level of fatality for patients with severe COVID-19. Given the remarkable safety of vitamin C, frequent deficiency among patients with COVID-19, extensive evidence of potential benefits, the current treatment is justified on compassionate grounds pending more COVID-19 clinical trials. And it goes on from there. So, this morning, when I do my semi-annual examination of my skin uh, to see that I have no precancerous lesions or anything, which was fine, um, my doctor said, oh, by the way, I came down with COVID, all right? But I beat it in two days. And no one in my house, my wife and my daughter, no one had it. How did, what did you do? Did you take ivermectin? No, no. I, I didn't take anything. Oh, yeah, I took a lot of vitamin D, and I took a lot of vitamin C and zinc, and, uh, and it was gone in two days. Filling fit as fiddle, and, and uh, now I have some protection, though we don't know how long that is. And uh, he said, but... Had I not taken those vitamins, no, I'd, I was afraid it was going to end up in the hospital, intensive care. That was just this morning from my doctor. So I'm showing you that, you know, there's a lot that's really good that we're not using to prevent the condition, and now they're seeing vitamin C. So that is terrific. And by the way, anyone who's suffering from polycystic ovary syndrome, a good study out of Peking Union Medical College says that catechins, that's C-A-T, cat E-C-H-I-N-S, catechins, from oolong, oolong is O-O-L-O-N-G-T, improves urine defects by inhibiting STAT-3 signaling in polycystic ovary syndrome in this scientific study. So just something else to help. And all from Texas A&M, Research shows that prenatal carnitine, carnitine, carna, C-A-R-N-I-T-I-N-E, supplementation could help prevent autism. This was published in the very respected Cell Reports. So natural nutrition, a supplement, L-carnitine, which helps with the heart and can now help prevent autism. I'm Gary Nall. That is the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break. I'm coming back with a special commentary. From there, we're going to my guest, who has a lot of new information to share with us. I suggest that you take notes, and if you find this compelling, please share it with everyone. Remember, one of the reasons that so many people today are healthier is because they share quality information. All right, and I want to thank our 17 million listeners and counting on the Progressive Radio Network. Back in a moment with a special original commentary. I'd like to welcome all of you listening all over the world and all the other stations carrying our program. This is entitled The New America of Angst and Discontent by Richard Gale, myself. 
For the vast majority of Americans, the past year has been the most challenging in our lives, certainly for young adults. However, not everybody has suffered equally. The nation's health or illness is not uniform. Much of our suffering is dependent upon the institutionalization and negligence of previous injustices, the loss of social equanimity, economic headlessness, meaning we are not heeding that which we should. As a result, we're not using our thought processes in a way that is constructive and is able to solve problems. And of course, our leaders' unmitigated greed and pursuit of power on both sides. Both are equally guilty. Nor is everyone adversely affected by the shifts underway in imaginations of the political and ideological universes. The transnational class of corporate and banking elites, for example, has little motivation to respect or contribute to national boundaries and interest. They perceive themselves as global actors. For the generals and captains of neoliberal globalization, the puppets, masters of financial markets, the COVID-19 pandemic only caused annoying disruptions in the quality of their lives. For the remainder, it has been cataclysmic. There's something on the horizon that does not bode well for most Americans. It is a simple principle to understand Yet it is so subtle, it will likely go unnoticed until everyone is individually or collectively affected. It is the utter lack of balance within the nation's body politic and across the media that spoon-feeds us virtual images of faux theatrical plays, the illusory icons on our mind's monitor screens that shape our perspectives of reality. This is how control is exerted over our thoughts and speech and actions. In fact, it is only after people exercise their thoughts independently with the certain belief that they have actual self-control over their lives that they arrive at the realization that their perceptions may be largely distorted. You are not free. Throughout America's history, there has been a system of three federal branches to assure there is a platform of checks and balances, as well as a structure that contain the tensions between them. That system now is being rapidly challenged and even eroded away. Next week, the middle-of-the-road Democrats will officially control the White House and both the legislative bodies, the Senate, and the House. We will see what awaits us. There's also what is commonly referred to as the fourth estate, the powers of the press and the news media that control the framing of the political narrative and partisan issues. In the past, more or less, the media was expected to hold the government accountable by exposing its conflicts of interest that endanger the public, its misdemeanors and systemic corruption. This is too much in decay, and the media has been fully captured by corporate interest and now aligns itself politically and ideologically with the new political elite determined to reshape democracy and launch a new reset that will dramatically infringe on individual rights and liberties. And finally, there is the growing influence of a fourth branch of government the corporate state, and its private interest. They're not elected. You won't even know most. We might also include the U.S. intelligence community that now increasingly operates virtually independent from any oversight by the executive or legislative branches. Together we can witness this cabal of seemingly independent entities working simultaneously in consortium and in opposition to each other, propelling us towards a future tsunami of greater polarization and immense social disruption. 
Earlier generations were not threatened by the telecommunications and technological giants of industries such as Google or Facebook, Amazon, Twitter. Clinton's Communications Decency Act of 1996, despite its realistic intentions to protect free speech, was otherwise destructively naive. At that time, it was sensible, however, not now, that was before the advent of the social media that now dominates our lives and shapes our political narratives. Now we're witnessing Silicon Valley as a force far more powerful than the lobbyists on K Street to ensure that corporate Democrats are raised to a position of absolute, unchallengeable power. Yet the problem would be equally threatening if it were the corporate and radicalized Republicans in power. The centrist Democrat left lulled in a, in a passivity that it can only happen if we're not paying attention, but it can't happen now, not to us, not to our country. Yes, it can happen, is happening as we speak. And it's every bit as dangerous and delusional as the Republican far right's paranoia over conspiracy squatting behind every nook and cranny. A moderate centrist right no longer exists as it has now exited reality like a herd of lemmings to follow Trump over a, over a cliff. The more important question to contemplate is how this will impact yourself and average citizens. What happens elsewhere around the world must no longer be viewed in isolation. Globalization is perhaps the most holistic phenomena within the matrix of financial capital movements and postmodern social restructuring. As an example, China now has the means to socially control most of its population, especially those in urban areas. On the other hand, China would be unable to succeed in this endeavor without the direct assistance in trade and technological science that we have frequently given it. China has already launched a social scoring system, a nefarious means to reward and penalize public activity. I'll give you an example. If a person protests the lack of personal freedom, even politely, quietly, or the lack of democratic values or free speech, his or her social score immediately decreases. And through digital networks, authorities can monitor and identify every single Chinese citizen's movements. All of this technology is ready to launch in the U.S. and other developing countries. However, rather than social scoring, it is called BitChain, B-I-T, chain, which has already been employed for almost a decade now. After the recent attack on the Capitol by hundreds of Trump's most radical supporters, a Patriot Act 2.0 has was ready to be launched. This follows a similar playbook to the to the weeks following 9/11, and Joe Biden was one of the principal architects of that legislation. Does this mean that the Capitol was a false flag, as many conspiratorial sites, right and left, are now suggesting? I doubt it. Why? We believe this apparent convergence of events may have more in common with what the quantum physicist and Nobel laureate Wolfgang Pauli and his colleague Carl Jung and later Arthur Kessler theorized as synchronicity or meaningful coincidences that unfold despite there being no apparent causal relationship. Perhaps this is a wrong interpretation, but it is nonetheless something worth considering as we try to better understand how a dystopian future is evolving before our eyes through what might appear as a convergence of disparate events, laws, and policies. At this moment, the federal government and the individual states are overreacting to COVID's health threats. The climate and environment is not being given attention, and social cohesion is actually on the downside. These threats are eliciting government mandates such as vaccination. Anthony Fauci has suggested just last week that COVID-19 vaccine mandates 
are on the table at the federal level, which, by the way, would mean you would not be protected if your state says, like South Carolina or Texas, we're not going to mandate vaccine in this state. It's voluntary, not mandatory. The fact that this is being publicly stated should quell any conspiratorial theories. They're acknowledging it. And keep in mind, the federal law always supersedes or is more important than the state law. It is already part of the long-term agenda for expanding the government's social control under the pretense and propaganda of keeping America safe under the banner of national security. New laws are under construction that would re redefine hate speech, such as conflating criticism towards Israel policies, which are legitimate, even in Israel, against Palestinians, and suddenly you are called anti-Semitic. And there's a law then that would punish you for being engaged in hate speech, and though your speech may be not based on hate, but simple, your opinion or the facts upon what is happening in that country. Censorship of free speech for criticizing official narratives and policies to tackle the pandemic are being enforced as we speak. Any criticism towards the complete failure of the PCR test as a reliable diagnostic tool is being redefined as threats to public health. People raising such critiques may eventually find their names on domestic terrorist lists, and this scenario is not beyond the imagination. Do you remember when WikiLeaks revealed that environmental, animal protection, and human rights groups had all been labeled as terror organizations by the FBI and Homeland Security? Guilt by association laws, for example, buried in Obama's National Defense Authorization Act, it exists. You could be arrested. You could be detained without any evidence being presented to you or knowing anything against you if you merely know someone that they are targeting. They sweep up everybody else in that same net, and you have no protections. Expanding a law's scope is far easier than erasing it from the books. Consequently, it is not unlikely that these laws may eventually widen to include charges of subversion based solely upon your emails that you've read, the videos you've watched, or the broadcasts that you've listened to. Think that's not possible? Every single thing that you've done on the Internet, they have cataloged, they have every letter written, every photo taken, every phone call you've had, they have you, your voice. So... They can make a case against you. So keep in mind, that's where we're at at this moment. This would inevitably lead to the death toll for many uh, of the people involved in honest journalism. They would not be able to write or report or investigate anything. This is underway as we witness Silicon Valley's collusion with the government to cancel the voices of some of our most prominent investigative journalists, such as Chris Hedges, who will be on this program tomorrow, Cheryl Atkinson, who's going to be on this program next week, Glenn Greenwald, the same, Max Blumenthal, and of course, the person who did more than any human being in American history to expose corporate and government malfeasance, Julian Assange. And for, for exposing the crimes against others, he is now looking at life in prison unless the president pardons him. The outgoing president or the incoming president could look for neither to happen. These are only a few of the many examples. The new unstated law is that original investigation must support the official narrative. Otherwise, it will be prohibited from accessing the public view. We may recall that under the second Bush administration, the Justice Department created free speech zones, meaning fenced off tiny areas or confined areas where demonstrators were only permitted to exercise their constitutional rights of free speech. Today, we are only several small amendments away from the right to assembly being banned altogether. Now faced with growing condemnation by many nations, the United States' hegemony 
on the world geopolitical arena has waned considerably. Biden's administration and its return to neocon foreign hardline hawkish free market policies will likely make every effort to regain the dominance it lost during the past four years. How successful a Biden White House will be to recover lost ground and international respect remains to be seen. On the other hand, what has vanished in the United States' former full-spectrum dominance over the geopolitical landscape is now being inverted to strengthen federal hegemonic reign over the American population. Finally, we need to awaken to modern technology's remarkable sophistication and its certain threats to the health of our societies and even to our definition of being human. Sadly, this is an industry each one of us has been complicit in advancing. Coining a term by one of the planet's most important and forgotten 20th century prophetic voices, the Trappist monk, Friar Thomas Merton, we are facing a great unspeakable, a spiritual crisis contributing to the existential vacuity of a modern American culture. Now, few are aware that in his 1964 collection of meditations called Seeds of Destruction, Merton predicted that the civil rights movement would confront a catastrophic impasse and may find itself leadership in a void, a vacuum. Four years later, Martin Luther King, who Merton has a deep correspondence with, was assassinated. Merton would be assassinated under unusual circumstances later that year in Thailand. Another way to describe the unspeakable is criminal sovereignty with a capital S to convey its numerous qualities. If alive today, I believe that Merton would look upon the Proud Boys on the right and the Antifa on the left as mere expressions of the meaninglessness of American life, manifesting as a turbulent ocean of afflictive emotions and thoughts. Instead of technology serving the needs of humanity, Americans are being increasingly conditioned to willingly bow as slaves to technology. The unspeakable that Merton defined, yes, is a mantra. Technology must, he said, progress regardless of how many people fall destitute, jobless, debt-ridden, and physically ill with only suicide as a recourse to escape as what will happen. Quote, American democracy today, Merton observed over 55 years ago, quote, is just cheap, pressed wood fiber, cardboard, and spray paint. Consequently, the elites sitting in the global control tower view the emerging technological regime as preferable to democracy's kabuki theater. Advanced surveillance, artificial intelligence, intelligent robotics, transhumanism, 5G, Internet of Everything, genetic engineering, weather modification, cloud seeding should be our guiding avatars. The solutions, he would argue, can no longer be found in civil discourse or the rights of human beings gathered in assembly. For the ruling elite, the masses are dumb sheep in need of a shepherd. This is what Arthur Ronald Wright called the progress trap. Progress unendings efforts to feed technology's hunger, to devour natural and human capital interest-free, and the mainstream press and news media in its malady of cognitive dissidence serve as its unreflective cheerleader for our march towards civilization's collapse. Merton was keenly aware of technology's dangers to social stability. In 1967, in a letter, he took aim at the universal myth that technology is un infallible and makes everything in our everyday life better for everybody. It does not, he said. However, he was by no means a Luddite. Technology could indeed make a better world for millions of human beings, he wrote, yet there remained the nightmare of technology transforming the world into a more collectivist, cybernated mass culture, he said. 
Decades before the first desktop, Merton foresaw a complete fragmentation of the nation's moral and spiritual fabric when people will begin basing all of their political and ethical decisions on computers. Prophetically, he wrote to a friend, quote, just wait until they start philosophizing with computers. That was in 1967. He even foresaw technology becoming a means to elevate the slaves of technology's false self to satisfy narcissistic appetites for admiration and status. In other words, he saw the social media of wokeness. The greatest need of our time, Merton wrote in his con Conjections of a Guilty Bystander, is to clean out the enormous mass of mental and emotional rubbish that clutters our minds and makes us all political and social um, mass illness. Without this house cleaning, we cannot begin to see. Unless we see, we cannot think. The purification must begin with the mass media, end quote. For this reason, we urgently need to penetrate the illusions of propaganda and popular falsehoods and across the entire political spectrum, as well as self-appointed pontificating Pharisees, that we have entered a new social era. Despite its newness, it has always been clearly predictable, no doubt. If Orwell were penning his great book today, the emergence of this new era we are witnessing would not be fiction. With that, we will go to my guest and let me warn our stations. Um, I realize some of you have to sign off at five before the hour, but we're going to take it to the top of the hour. If you wish to continue listening, you can listen on PRN.FM. <clears throat> and now I want to introduce you to our guest who's been standing by and listening in, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to uh, have her give her perspective, especially in light of what she's going to share with us. Her name is Alexis Baden-Mayer, and she is a Washington-based lawyer and activist serving as the political director of the Organic Consumer Organization and its fund. She's the co-editor of the Organic Consumer Organization's uh, director's uh, newsletter, along with Ronnie Cummings, that reaches about 300,000 subscribers. And what we're going to talk about is the scientific cabal of virus gain of function researchers the people who actually did all this that created what we consider the most probable outcome for the evolution of the coronavirus. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Gary. Nice to talk with you. You have so much to say, I'm going to ask you one question that should carry you through the rest of this interview. At no time and in no major media of any type, not PRN, uh, excuse me, not uh, uh, National Public Radio or PBS or Bloomberg, has anyone asked the basic question, is it possible, and if so, what is the evidence, that this gain of function was meant to create a more lethal virus, and if so, could this have led to the creation of coronavirus? And if that's the case, wouldn't all those participating, funding it, or doing the actual research, be involved in a crime against humanity and should be held accountable. If that is the case, show your evidence to us, please. We have seen it, Richard and I, and I want the audience to know all this evidence is now being posted on PRN.FM. You can read it for yourself. Talk about the people involved so we have their names, their backgrounds. What proof do you have that these people are complicit in gain of function research, making something more lethal, and as a lawyer, is it even legal for them to have done this work? The forum is yours. Thank you so much, Gary. So earlier this year, I started to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Now, most people wouldn't think that that needs to be done. We've been told that COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, is a virus that leapt from animals to people. And as everyone probably recalls, the culprit that the Chinese government and all experts fingered was the Wuhan wet market. And I think part of this plays on American racism and ignorance. We, if we're told that Chinese people eat bats, 
we say, oh, Chinese people eat bats. And so then they would get bat viruses and that might cause an outbreak like this. But um, Chinese people don't eat bats. <laughs> and the, the Wuhan wet market wasn't serving bats. And the Wuhan wet market was not this source of the COVID-19 outbreak. There is zero evidence that the Wuhan wet market originated the outbreak. Um, people are saying now, scientists are saying now, that probably there were people who were frequenting the wet market, who were congregating there, and that it was essentially a super spreader event very early on in this outbreak. Um, but what did catch the attention of keen onlookers is that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is in Wuhan, China. They collect bat viruses from 1,000 miles away in the Yunnan province of China. And they were experimenting on bat viruses based on their assumption that perhaps bat viruses were what had caused the first SARS outbreak in 2003. The first SARS outbreak is presumed to have come from civet cats at a wet market and was then transmitted from the civet cats to human beings. But even that has not been proven essentially, it hasn't been documented. Um, there were civet cats and other animals at the wet market in Guangdong um, that did have the first SARS. And, but that's where the link ends. The animal handlers who cared for the civet cats did not have SARS. And the civet cats on the farms, a civet cat is um, a cute little furry creature that Chinese people do actually eat. And it's farmed just like pigs and cows are farmed in the United States. And, um, but the civet cats on the farms didn't have SARS. And so it still actually remains a mystery where the first SARS came from. But there are researchers who are paid by the US government to research viruses and not just the US government, like the National, National Institutes of Health, although they do fund this research, but also the Pentagon, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which operates biological labs around the world. Some people say these are biological weapons labs. Um, DITRA would say they are biological weapons defense labs, but there were contracts given to scientific researchers in China to research viruses um, by these US entities. And, and the collaborator in China was the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The grantee from the US government was EcoHealth Alliance. And then there are a number of scientists within the networks of these two organizations. And on this theory that SARS had originated at a wet market and had been transmitted to human beings from civet cats, they went looking in nature for the, SARS, the source of the SARS virus and claimed to have found viruses that that had to be ancestors of SARS in bats. And so they found the largest collection of these bat coronaviruses in the Yunnan province, not close to Guangdong, <laughs> still a thousand kilometers away. Um, and so they, for a number of years after the first SARS, they were going into caves to collect bat viruses in Yunnan and um, although this information didn't come out right away this year, it has now been admitted by these scientists that one of the reasons that they were in Yunnan and no other place in China collecting bat viruses is because in 2012, there was a SARS-like outbreak in a hospital in Kangming in the Yunnan province of China. So the scientists involved are Peter Dajic from the Wuhan, sorry, Peter Dajic from EcoHealth Alliance, funded by the US government, and his Chinese collaborator from U, the Yunnan, the Yuhan Institute of Virology, Shi Zhengli. So Peter Dajic and Shi Zhengli are in Kangming in China in 2012. And they near the city of Kangming very near the city of Kangming, within the city limits of Kangming, there is a bat cave and they are 
searching for bat viruses in this cave in Kangming. And again, even though this is 2012 now, they are still exploring the possible origins of the first SARS outbreak. And they, they believe that it's linked to bat viruses. And so they continue in 2012 to hunt for bat viruses in this area. So they're in, in Kangming and they're collecting bat viruses. And one of the bat viruses that they collect in 2012 in Kangming gets sent to Ralph Barrick in at the North Carolina, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And what Ralph Barrick does with this bat virus is what we call gain of function research. He, he takes the virus and he sees if he can take this bat virus that wouldn't infect a human being and turn it into a virus that could infect a human being that would be more infectious, more dangerous, more deadly to humans. That's what gain of function research is. And so he is able to create uh, a chimeric virus out of synthetic biology and genetic engineering. And he shows that this virus has the potential to infect human beings. So this is the type of science that is done to try to explain how SARS happened. They collect bat viruses, they take them to the lab, they see if they can turn these bat coronaviruses into something like the SARS coronavirus. And at this time in Kangming, at the very same time that, that Shi Zhengli and Peter Dajak are collecting this virus that Ralph Barrick will later turn into a, a deadly virus that could um, infect human beings and make human beings sick. At the same time that they're collecting this virus in 2012, there are six people who end up in the hospital in the same city of Kangming with a SARS-like virus. And now the, the only documentation we have about this are a PhD thesis that was, um, as far as I know, it was um, anonymous scientists on Twitter who, who um, identified a Chinese PhD thesis and then translated the Chinese PhD thesis. And from that, we know that there were six people who were in Kangming who had a SARS-like virus. And this was a very big deal, obviously, in China. This is the first SARS-like outbreak in China since the, the SARS pandemic virus struck. And so famous scientists from all over China go to Kangming in Yunnan and they collect samples from these folks. They, they test their antibodies. They try to figure out what's going on. And according to a PhD thesis that was uh, shared with US researchers this year um, by anonymous scientists, presumably, or presumably anonymous scientists, we don't really know exactly where this came from, but, um, but they say that, that these people got sick. They, the experts thought it was a SARS-like virus and there were samples sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so this of course was hidden because that seems really strange that, that um, you know, these people who collect bat viruses to try to explain the origins of SARS, um, now it looks like they're collecting human viruses, but they're not publicizing this um, it was a big deal at the time, but they didn't publicize the fact that they kept viruses in the lab in in Yunnan, or sorry, in Yuhan, in sorry, in Wuhan. <laughs> and and so then in 2020, when we have this outbreak of a new SARS, which we car call SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Um, these folks who have been collecting these viruses all of these years, they say, oh, we've got something really similar to COVID-19. It's a bat virus that we collected back in 2013. And, and no connection is made to the people who got sick with the SARS-like virus in 2012, even though Shi Zhengli and Peter Dajak are there at the time. They are collecting bat guano from caves. And now we, we know that at that same time, there were people collecting bat guano from caves who got sick. Now, there's no evidence that links these, these people who got sick to the work that Shi Zhengli 
and Peter Daszak were doing, but I think that that should be investigated. That's just a strange coincidence. And I think what we also need to investigate is where, where did these samples from the people who were sick with a SARS-like virus end up? And why isn't the Wuhan Institute of Virology telling us about these human SARS viruses? They're only telling us about bat coronaviruses at this point. But the official story now is that yes, these people got sick and that was the reason why they collected viruses in this province in 2013. And at that time, they found a bat coronavirus that's very similar to COVID-19. So there are a lot of places to go from here. For one, we definitely need to be looking at more than wet markets in Wuhan. We definitely need to be investigating the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They say they have the closest known virus to the current outbreak virus, the pandemic virus, and and we know that they were experimenting on it. That's something that they lied about initially, but that information has since come out that, that yes, they actually published this, this virus back in 2016. So they had been working with it in the lab, analyzing its genetics. And the, there are a couple of things that might've happened. It's entirely possible that they were working with a virus like RATG13, this, this bat virus collected a thousand miles away in Yunnan. Perhaps they were trying to make a vaccine or something and it was manipulated the same way that Ralph Barrick manipulated other bat viruses at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And they created something that was very deadly to human beings and it escaped from the lab, likely accidentally. Um, there is a long history of accidental releases of, of the first SARS. So we had the, the SARS pandemic, 2003, 2004. And then after the, the virus stopped circulating in the general public, there was, were several cases of laboratory researchers working with the virus, getting sick from the virus. So we know that even though we have biosafety regulations that are meant to keep researchers and the rest of us safe from accidents that could cause a virus to leave the lab. We know that these accidents happen. And therefore it just seems commonsensical um, given that we, we can't explain a natural way that this, this virus had its emergence in 2019 in, in Wuhan. We must investigate whether this virus came from the lab. And I think even more than that, I think that we need to investigate what happened in 2012 with the, the SARS outbreak that didn't cause a pandemic, but got people sick. And is there a connection between whatever lab accident happened in, in 2019 in, in Wuhan, which is, is, is going to become like right now, it's sort of breaking through this story. I think that people who look into it see right away that we don't have evidence for the natural origin. And we have this strange coincidence of a virus starting in the same city where China has its only biosafety level four laboratory that happens to have the largest collection of coronaviruses in the world and is doing research on them constantly. And, and that needs to be investigated. The World Health Organization is supposedly investigating this, but the person they've put in charge of the investigation is Peter Dajic, a collaborator and funder of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and his partners, Shi Zheng Li and others at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that he publishes papers with. So he doesn't seem like the right person to be doing this. And we need a real investigation. I'm not sure who can do a real investigation if we can't trust the World Health Organization to do it. But if we have a strong enough popular demand, we need a real investigation and we need a deep investigation that, that looks at this research going back over the last decade and, and seeing 
what sort of research they were actually doing. Did they collect human viruses in addition to bat viruses? And what did they do with them? And, and were there any accidents? And frankly, I think that we also need to see the parallels perhaps between this event and the 2001 anthrax attacks. I only say this because once I started investigating all of the, the scientists, but also the government actors involved in this, for instance, Robert Cadlick and Christian Hassel, who are at the, um, the health department of the United States, and they're in charge of giving out vaccine contracts and pharmaceutical contracts. Earlier this year, the Washington Post reported that these guys were giving contracts to what they described as shady um, people working for the Department of Defense, people that could not be trusted. They were giving contracts to Defense Department um, contractors who should, ha should have had no business getting government contracts by their own estimate. And, and yet they thought that they could get away with giving contracts to all of their old buddies. Um, so Peter, sorry, um, Christian Hassel and Robert Cadlick um, not only were caught in a scandal this year, giving contracts to work on COVID-19 to defense contractors who had no business doing this research because they were so shady in their own words, but each of these people go back to the of 2001. Christian Hassel was at the FBI when the FBI's botched investigation fingered Bruce Ivins, who had supposed suicide and could not defend himself against these allegations. Um, Christian Hassel was the FBI person in charge of defending that, that conclusion to the FBI's investigation. And Robert Cadlick it goes back, you know, shady dealings with defense contractors for pharmaceutical contracts. He was the person who worked for a company called Bioport, which is now called Emergence Biotechnology or Emergent Biosolutions. And he helped them get the contract for anthrax vaccines back in, in right after the anthrax attacks. And he's also the person who helped this very same company get contracts to produce vaccine for COVID-19. So if we're talking about motives, about like who would do such a thing, we actually know that the anthrax attacks of 2001 did come from U.S. government labs and ended up benefiting a bunch of government contractors that were pharmaceutical companies producing vaccines and other countermeasures. So I think that there are enough parallels, but the one that I just researched this week, I have a new article up on our gain of function hall of shame on David Franz. And David Franz was a US military biological weapons scientist. He ran the USAMRID lab at Fort Detrick. And then in the years immediately following his retirement from the military, he worked with another biological weapons scientist who had worked for Russia, uh, Ken Alabek, and another former commander of USAMRID at Fort Detrick, Charles Bailey. And they were given a contract by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, to weaponize anthrax. And as it turns out, the weaponized anthrax that they had a contract to create is the very same anthrax that was used in the 2001 attacks. They patented the method for creating this anthrax. They, they were able to create nanoscale anthrax spores that could waft up into an aerosol when opened from a letter. If y'all remember the facts of the anthrax attack, it was letters mailed to US politicians, including- Alex, Alex I'm gonna ask you to hold for a moment. You have so much more information to share that I'm going to bring you back for a full hour this Tuesday night for a progressive commentary hour because we haven't yet got to that area that we need real detailed information and you have it. I've read what you've sent us that is it legal to engage in gain of function when you are increasing the pathogenicity of a virus or bacteria? Also, 
Remember, a lot of Gulf War vets got sick after they got the anthrax vaccine, the very vaccine that these people made, but were never held accountable, and the government denied all this. In fact, it was a Dr. Merrill Nass who uncovered the squalene and other adjuvants in the vaccines that were also contributing to their adverse effects and hundreds of thousands of vets. We also have to ask, Is it? are these people responsible? And you haven't even gotten to Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates yet. And uh, so can you come back Tuesday evening live, 7 o'clock, so we can share the rest of this information uninterrupted for an hour? Yes, I would love to. Sorry to be long-winded. No, no, you're not long-winded. You had 25 minutes, and you're just starting to get into the intricacies which we need to know. And let me mention to our guests, uh, to our audience, everything that uh, the Alexis is talking about, we have independently verified. We have all the documentation. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening. Have a nice day.